I'm Mariana Vieira. I'm Amrit Swali, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Undercurrents. We hope you've been well, and today I have the great pleasure of being joined by my co-host, Amrit. Amrit, how are you? I am very well, thank you, although very tired after a long day of meetings, which seem to have just taken over my life now. But how are you doing? I'm good, although I reckon we could have a competition of who's got the the biggest Zoom fatigue for the day, because it's also been quite heavy on the meetings on my side as well. But I want to ask, before we get into the interviews, if you're doing anything exciting after this to brighten up your day. I'm going to be perfectly honest, my life isn't that exciting right now. I've been binge watching Modern Family, so as soon as I finish work, I will probably sit down and watch a couple of hours of that. And and that is how thrilling things are. Sounds perfectly exciting to me. Are you doing anything exciting after work today? I mean, it depends on how anxiety-inducing it is for you to either start a new book or a new TV series, because I finished the book I was reading and the TV series I was watching, so... It depends on what uh, on what will come up first. So it's a bit uncertain at the moment is my, my honest answer. Well, we are recording this on a Tuesday. And if I'm right, Bake Off is back tonight. So I don't know if you'll be watching that, but I probably will. So I'm looking forward to that. That's my exciting thing, actually. Speaking of exciting things, who did you talk to for this week's podcast? So I interviewed Dr. Christopher Sabatini, who is a senior research fellow for Latin America with the US and America's program here at Chatham House. Great. Chris is such a great colleague and listeners will have heard him on the pod many, many times. What did you guys talk about? That's true, actually. He was he was on the pod for an episode on the gig economy, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, on this occasion, uh, we talked about the elections that are taking place throughout Latin America, which have started sometime in October last year and will continue until 2024. And Chris gave a brilliant overview of the context in which these elections are taking place and drew on examples from Nicaragua, Mexico and Chile. He also shared, or or rather I left him no choice but sharing his thoughts uh, on whether the region will soon be seeing a new generation of political leaders, which was pretty exciting. Um, How about you, Amrit? Who did you speak to and what about? So this week I spoke to our colleague Yuja from the Asia-Pacific program and Dr. Liana Fix of the Corba Foundation, who just as a bit of background on our discussion, the Corba Foundation runs policy games where they simulate a crisis and ask representatives from various governments and civil services to kind of react and respond. So it's essentially a simulation. But recently they ran a policy game that looked at how Europe might respond to an escalation in the Taiwan Strait. So we did try to stay clear of too many hypotheticals in the discussion, but that does come up a little bit. But eventually we kind of covered the state of relations between Beijing and Taipei, public opinion around the topic, European priorities and the prospect of the unified European approach to Taiwan. There's a report on the policy games recommendations that we'll link in the show notes later as well. I should also probably add that we recorded the discussion a day before the announcement of the Australia-UK-US security pact. I guess, given the position that China holds in the kind of strategic thinking behind this pack, it's obviously going to have implications for how these countries might respond in the case of increasing Chinese aggression against Taiwan, in fact. And elsewhere in Europe, the EU is being encouraged to negotiate a trade agreement with Taiwan and also consider their inclusion in the UN as like in observer capacity. 
So there are efforts too that will definitely have an effect on the ability of European nations to manoeuvre in their responses in such an incident. But that's all to say that the conversation definitely touches upon core issues like how partnerships might form and where priorities will lie, but we don't discuss them in the context of AUKUS and other developments because it hadn't happened, which I guess is the occupational hazard of doing what we're doing. And I'm sure we'll get around to discussing all of those other things on the pod and elsewhere once we have a better idea of what they actually look like. So let's have a listen. So now I'm joined by Chris. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing well, Mariana. Nice to be with you. So I thought we should jump right in and look at the backdrop of the 2021 elections that are taking place uh, in Latin America. So as you know, many Latin American countries enter this year with fragile economies, challenged democracies, and amidst the second wave of COVID-19. So for our listeners who might not be keeping a close eye on the region, could you shed some light on this context in which about 15 elections are taking place this year? It's, it's always important to look at the context in which elections take place, both in terms of popular attitudes and in terms of institutions. And in terms of popular attitudes, we have obviously a unique moment in history, in Latin America, political history and democratic history, which is, first of all, in 2019, there were a wave of protests that swept many countries in the region with you know, proximate causes that differed. But you had protests in the Dominican Republic, you had protests in Bolivia, you had protests in Venezuela, you had protests in Ecuador, you had protests in Chile, and you had protests in Colombia. Again, they differed, but in some ways, we could say that they were demonstrating, obviously, a certain amount of popular discontent with political elites, uh, with institutions. And so that was the context in 2019. And then you had a freeze, basically. In 2020, with COVID, everything was sort of tamped down, if you will. And to make matters more challenging is that during that time during COVID, you saw, first of all, some of the highest infection rates in the world, a country with only a region with only about 8% of the region world's population, uh, had about 30% of the infections uh, of COVID. Uh, At the same time, many countries, not all, many implemented very severe lockdown measures and all were affected by the economic pull down globally. So regionally, on average, uh, Latin America's economies uh, contracted by more than 7% in 2020. And most of the elections were put on hold until this year, until 2021. So you've got this weird convergence of factors, popular discontent, economic contraction, infection rates, and with economic contraction, increases in poverty uh, and the declining middle class. And then now suddenly, a new era of elections. And so that's the context. And you had elections, as you mentioned, Mariana, in Chile, in Peru, not in this order, by the way, Bolivia, in Mexico, midterm elections, the elections in midterm elections in El Salvador. You will be having elections, sort of, I guess you could call them that, uh, in Nicaragua. Uh, so it was a heavy electoral year. And in Chile in particular, what you had were elections, not just for the presidency, which are happening in October, but also for a constituent assembly to draft an entirely new constitution. And that came out of the popular protests of 2019 where people wanted change. And in particular, they wanted to rewrite the 1980 constitution that was written during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. But again, things were completely on hold. And then they had a referendum on the constitution, elected a new constituent assembly. And so again, 
it's an interesting experiment, uh, whether that can be sufficient to address people's needs, but it's happening in an environment that I think many people, well, I know no one would have predicted in 2019. And during this super cycle of elections that began with the elections, I think in Bolivia, the general elections in Bolivia, which you've alluded to, and will continue until sometime in 2024, all Latin American countries, except for Cuba, correct me if I'm wrong, will go to the polls. So my question is for whom and how important is this electoral process taking place now? It is a very important electoral process for a number of reasons. The first of all reason is what I mentioned before, is that it's coming at a time of social upheaval, um, not to use too severe a term. And elections in these cases can serve as a very important safety valve, that they allow people to express their demands, express their discontent, and change government. And that's important. But by the same token, is they're occurring in two other times that are problematic. The first is in the last decade, certainly in the last five years, there's been a sharp uptick in people's distrust and lack of confidence in political institutions. It's not unlike what we've seen globally or even in the United States or even in the European Union. People are simply more and more dissatisfied with what democracy is delivering, and they're more and more distrustful of their political elite primarily over issues of corruption uh, or issues of lack of accountability. And so people are frustrated and they're going to the polls, but they don't necessarily trust that their political class can deliver the sorts of change that they really, really want. That's the second issue. So take those two issues together and what you have is a potential for outsider candidates, a level of populism, a certain amount of discontent being expressed by, you know what, it really doesn't matter. I'm going to pick someone who's not a traditional politician. We saw this in the United States with Donald Trump, of course, in, in uh, 2016. But it's very, we see it very much in Latin America today. The other reason this is important is because you see in a number of cases attempts to deeply polarize these countries, intentionally on both sides of the political spectrum. In some cases, uh, governments in power, uh, like the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is engaging in an effort to consolidate his power. And so the legislative elections in 2021, really an opportunity to try to put a check on his efforts to do so. Uh, in other countries like Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega and his wife, uh, Murillo, Rosario Murillo, uh, who's the vice president, were clearly trying to preempt or any sort of uh, opposition, meaningful opposition to their uh, the elections in November, 2021 in a way that basically they have no competitors. Whereas in other situations, like potential regional elections in Venezuela, it looks quite likely that the government of Nicolás Maduro is going to try to consolidate his electoral or political power as well. And so you have this other movement, if you will, towards autocracy that in some cases could be checked by these elections. And we saw it in the case of Mexico, I think a very healthy electoral environment. But in other cases, the elections are simply being used to consolidate power by some leaders. Another example, by the way, is Nayib Bukele of El Salvador, who uh, won a, a two, more than two-thirds of the party, won more than two-thirds of the Congress, congressional elections, and he moved very quickly afterwards to remove Supreme Court justices and extend his power, and even switched the national currency to Bitcoin, much to everyone's surprise. In that case, an electoral mandate delivered in the midst of, of the 2021 elections really serve for him to consolidate his personal power. And many argue implement a personalized project for autocratic domination of the government. 
Thanks, Chris. And uh, you mentioned this discontent or distrust with the political elite. You've given different examples of different countries within the region. And I thought I would try and encourage you in this case uh, to look further into breaking up the, the, the region into its national blocks. And my next question would be, will these elections have consequences for intra-Latin American cooperation? Yeah, it's a good point. And, and it's important, as you stress, Mariana, to understand this is a very diverse region. All too often, commentators in the media try to describe it in broad brushstrokes in a way that's confusing. And if anything, you know, what we've seen, despite efforts to say, oh, it's a leftward swing, they called it the pink tide in the early 2000s, late 1990s. It's what we're seeing now, if more than anything, is on the one hand, a deep anti-incumbent attitude, and the other case, an effort by those in power, not in all cases, but some, to consolidate their power. But what we see now is a real diversification in terms of the political orientations of these governments. And so on the one hand, with the elections that were brought uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico to power three years ago, those brought to power a much less engaged, globally speaking, uh, president. He's very focused. In fact, he even sold the presidential plane when he travels, which I think he's only left the country once since he's been president. He travels on a regular commercial airline. Then you have, on the other hand, you have uh, in Brazil, Bolsonaro, who is brought to power um, by elections. Uh, he also is, is very, you know, very much in a Trumpian tradition. So America first, in this case, it's Brazil first, engages in kind of an ideological project projection outside Brazil, but he's not really engaged like other Brazilian presidents in trying to occupy or influence uh, multilateral institutions. Whereas in other cases, you have governments that are much more um, social democratic in, in a sort of a more a leftist leaning uh, anti-poverty program way, but they're still consumed oftentimes by their own internal projects. And so what you see increasingly, and it, it, and it really came sharply obvious during the COVID crisis, what you see are longstanding efforts to create regional organizations and to expand Latin America's influence globally through the IMF, through the WTO, through the OECD, uh, both of which had Latin American secretaries general uh, during until just recently, that's been re retracted. And the regional projects, things like UNISOR, which is a union of South American republics, the uh, CELAC, which is a community of Latin American Caribbean states, have effectively just splintered. In fact, UNISOR no longer exists. Its, it's building is, is empty. It's in Ecuador. I don't know what they're doing with it. I think they're probably renting it out for weddings and bar mitzvahs or something. And the OAS, the sort of the granddaddy of multilateral organizations, the region is just completely dysfunctional. Its secretary general, Luis Almagro, is trying to enforce, I think, certain democratic standards, but he's doing it in a way that has been deeply polarizing, has led to a number of regimes in the, in, in the region, such as in Venezuela, Maduro, to, to withdraw from the OAS, declare their lack of intention. Others who completely just vote consistently as a bloc, Nicaragua and Bolivia vote with Venezuela, and they have also um, voted against any form of sanction uh, against Nicaragua and Daniel Ortega's government. And so it's really not a functioning institution. It's, it's trying, but the region is so diverse and so polarized with so con and so many conflicting notions of the norms and principles that should bind a hemisphere that it has, for now at least, been rendered effectively uh, hamstrung. Great. You just used this word hemisphere, which I'm going to pick up upon. When you're talking about Latin American international influence, I was wondering what role can these democratic processes play in shifting Latin America from being sort of always referred to as 
the ground of superpower struggle, whether it's between the US or Soviet Union or the US and China now, and being seen as an international agent of its own. So what role can these processes play or what do you think needs to happen for Latin America to gain some international agency? That's an excellent question because first of all, it's had more agency, I think, than most people ever gave it credit for. Its history and its analysis has been marked, unfortunately, by its colonial legacy. And then sort of the, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, in which the U.S. said it would not allow any non-hemispheric power to re-colonize um, the free colonies of Spanish and, and Portuguese America, Spanish America at the time. And that sort of sense of U.S., I hate to say it, projecting Latin America as its backyard has, I think, in many ways infected analysis of the region. It's had, you know, whether it's Cuba or Venezuela or other in less antagonistic ways, Cold War-oriented ways, have tried to leverage contacts with Europe or with Africa and the Middle East to be able to gain a certain amount of space or a certain amount of agency over their own foreign policies. And there are excellent diplomatic cores within these countries that often get overlooked. Brazil has Ichimata Chi. Mexico has an excellent diplomatic service in its own right. So there's been that. And then by the same token, Chile, since the transition to democracy uh, in, in 1989, has basically unilaterally almost tied itself to global markets. It has free trade agreements with over 24 different countries. That really, and, and that served it well, by the way, during the COVID crisis, because it was one of the first countries to be able to receive sufficient vaccinations to be able to put jabs in people's arms for COVID. And it did that because it was so well connected to China uh, and to other countries. Other ones like Brazil, which has not done as well, um, was actually very slow in the uptake. And, and other countries such as Haiti and elsewhere have been very, very slow. But what we're also seeing today is in a multipolar world, there are more options for how Latin American governments can uh, assert their own agency uh, and leverage these relations. The United States' influence has declined. You know, no longer the, the threat of U.S. intervention, while Donald Trump unfortunately mentioned it in the case of Venezuela, really isn't a threat. The U.S. is not about to militarily intervene, as it's done in the case of Central America and the Caribbean 30 times. And so it's not going to do that. The same token, its share of economic power within the region is significantly diminished. China is now the number one trade partner of Brazil, of Argentina, of Chile, of Peru, and it's number two in Colombia and a number of other countries. And so you know, it, it, there's a lot more options. And plus you have you know, the EU and of course the UK now is rolling over these agreements, has uh, trade agreements with Mexico, with the Andean countries, so, and with Central America. So there's a real wealth of networks and contacts that, that mark um, the agency. And, and so consequently, while I think the United States sometimes lapses into this old fashioned notion that it's its, it's hemisphere, it really isn't. Um, the, I think the Latin American country has been far more sophisticated. And there, you know, there's often this fear that they're going to get played or corrupted or taken by China. And the truth is how they do that will vary. And I've done studies of this, but basically when governments have the autonomy, policy consistency, the policy of state that says this is going to be, as in the case of Chile, for example, to uh, be able to pursue relations with China, China doesn't dictate those terms. In other cases, such as Ecuador under Correa or Venezuela under Maduro, China does. But when governments engage on their own terms, they're treated as, as partners. And I think that's important because they're and, and they're, they're really engaging the world as it shifts, whether it's China, India, 
even in the case uh, of Europe and the UK, we're just seeing a much more active effort to diversify interests and diversify connections. It's certainly a much more flexible picture that and nuance that you're painting than the one we might traditionally get from looking from the outside in, in a way. There's a whole breed of people in the United States, in Washington, who, who sort of still live in the Cold War and they still see, you know, Iran is behind everything, China's behind everything, and it's, it's far more complex. <laughs> it's, far more. it's not so much that things haven't changed as it is that the way that people think about things hasn't changed. I thought, because you've mentioned Chile quite a lot, and I find the, the whole, the constituent assembly developments coming from the protests quite inspiring. I wanted to ask uh, about this pre-COVID wave of protests that sort of swept the region. And it strikes me that elections and protests are sort of two different avenues in which the population or individuals can seek change or to put demands forward. To what extent, and this is more about your optimism, but to what extent do you think elections can bring change to Latin America and what change would you like to see? Well, first of all, you, you kind of hinted at a really important point, which I didn't mention, is these protests were largely peaceful. And while there were cases of police abuse, allegations of torture, uh, illegal detainment, and detentions in, in cases like Chile and, and Colombia, these were not met with the same level of repression they would have been in the 1970s when these were most of these places were under uh, autocratic government. So it's a, you know, they're largely peaceful. Obviously, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, very different, where they are being met with an iron fist, a mano dura, as they would say. And so it's different. In the case of Chile, what's interesting is, of course, Chile has, has initiated a constitutional reform. And, and there, there are very good reasons, given Chile's history, for why people would want a new constitution. It was, again, not just symbolically, but it actually does limit the Chilean state to a very small role in terms of provision of basic public goods like education and healthcare. And people were in Chile in that case were largely protesting because they didn't feel that they had sufficient social mobility and that the access to public goods was not equally distributed. And they felt that the state should play a role in ensuring more equality before that. Now, the question is whether a constitution rewrite can address all those challenges. You know, you can remove some of those provisions, but and, and here's the larger issue too for the region, remove some of those provisions, but developing the institutional capacity, developing the spending capacity and taxing capacity, which is often sort of not understood in Latin America, it's very low compared to global standards, uh, is a much longer haul. And so a lot of the protests that we saw, yes, they were about corruption, but oftentimes they were about a lack of access to public goods, about inequality. And that's not something that you fix easily. We're not talking here, people just want elections or people want um, the right to vote for women or they want women want and need the right to choose. We're talking here about something very fundamental, which is how you reform institutions to make them more inclusive, to make them more uh, efficacious. And there's no recipe book for that. Um, you know, it's not like the 1990s where addressing hyperinflation was relatively easy to stop printing currency, you peg the currency of the dollar, you're done. These are very, very, and the question is, is, is patience running out? Are people so legitimately fed up that they're gonna say, you know what, we can't, we can't wait any longer. And so we'll have to see, we'll have to see. And I think, and this goes back to the point I made earlier, trust in institutions, trust in the political elites is going to be key. People will be much more willing to defer immediate gratification in terms of policy preferences if they trust their institutions will deliver on them. And they've trust their politicians would deliver on this. 
If they don't, they're going to have a very short attention span and, and, and patience for that. And that will be the challenge because these are not going to be easy fixes. So now I'm going to take this, this opportunity to ask you about your trust in their political institutions to a certain extent. So bear with me with this. This might sound a little dramatic, but as I was researching for our conversation, I came across this report that was put together earlier in the year that said that the decade of the 2020s can be a decade of opportunity or a lost decade. And the one that would play out uh, will largely depend on the quality of the leadership. So to that point, uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you make of the prospects of a new generation of political leaders taking up office in Latin America? I actually have a lot of confidence for the new generation of political leaders. Question is, is how they get to those positions. I, was, I used to work at the National Endowment for Democracy. And one human rights activist once told me, he says, you know, the best thing you can do for democracy in Latin America is pay for a retirement home for politicians. Just get them the heck out of politics. Tell them to move on and they can retire in a beachside villa and just get out of the way. The problem is they don't. Just take Brazil. You're going to have elections in 2022. You will likely pit Bolsonaro, a politician who's been around forever, though he tries to present himself as an outsider, against Lula, who served two terms. He's in his 70s. You know, these guys really represent, in many ways, the baggage of the old time. And in the protests that we saw in Chile were largely because they've been recycling the same politicians since the transition democracy in 1989. I mean, the last four presidents in Chile have been the same two people, okay? Michelle Bachelet and Sebastián Piñera. People were legitimately, they, it was time to move on. There is a new generation out there. In fact, one of my former students from Columbia University, Eduardo Leche, is the governor of uh, Rio Grande do Sul in, in Brazil. He's only, I think, 37. He's charismatic. He's technocratic because he's, he's been well-educated because he's one of my students. Actually, don't hold that against him. You know, and you have, you have uh, there's a, a great uh, former finance minister of Peru. There is a new generation. The question is, will the political processes and channels that can get them to a national level, many of them are being elected. For example, the mayor of, of Bogota, Claudia, is a, is a fascinating candidate. The former mayor and then governor, uh, mayor of Medellin of Colombia, Sergio Fajardo, fascinating guy, actually a PhD in mathematics. Um, the mayor of Mexico City, Claudia Scheinbaum, another fascinating politician. There are those leaders. Question is, is how are you going to break open party systems so they get a chance to show what they can do and run on their legitimate laurels nationally? So I guess you asked, you asked a simple question. I gave you a hard answer a long-winded answer. So I'm going to give you a simple but possibly wrong answer, which is I'm confident <laughs> in the leadership. I'm only halfway confident that they'll get the chance to prove that what they can do. I mean, absolutely. And your your confidence is sort of contagious. So I think I'll leave it at that. I hope it, it passes along to, to our listeners as well. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us once again for In The Currents. Oh, no, happy to do it, Mariana. Thanks for the, thanks for the attention. Not for me, but for the region. Latin America is... Uh, a region that's often overlooked. So thank you for your good questions and your interest. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Liana Fix, who is the Program Director for International Affairs at the Corbett Foundation, and my colleague Yuja, who is a Senior Research Fellow on China in the Asia Pacific Program at Chatham House. Many of you will know Yuji as well, who we fondly call Cherry, and she is, of course, a friend of the pod. 
Recently, Chatham House and Corbett Foundation published a report on how Europe might respond to a potential crisis in the Taiwan Strait. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. As our listeners will know, the Taiwan Strait has known its fair share of crises in the past 70 years. So I was wondering if we could begin by, Cherry, could you give us a bit of background to the importance of the Taiwan Strait in Taiwan-China relations? And what are the chances of another crisis? So delighted to return to the board. Again, as I said, I'm a long-standing friend of the board. Now, let's deal with the most difficult geopolitical situation, perhaps for the 20th century and lastly into the 21st century, the so-called Taiwan uh, Strait. Now, this is all go back to the Second World War. And for China, this is almost like an unfinished project in terms of national unity. And what I refer to China in here is a geographic concept that China between both Taiwan and also the so-called Communist China or the People's Republic. Um, back to 1949, the Taiwan government or the then Kuomintang government decided to desert Beijing and went to Taiwan. And after the United States and no longer support Taiwan, and then therefore you have the two Chinas that time, you have the Republic of China and then led by Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek, and then you also have the Communist China led by Mao Zedong, the Communist Party of China. So those two have a really strained but somehow interconnected relations within the past. Now, the things has really uh, triggered a change is back to 1971 that the Communist China, which is the People's Republic, managed to return the seat of the UN Security Council as being a, one of the permanent five members and then under the support of many developing countries, as well as under the support of Europe, and then allow the People's Republic to become the permanent member. And then on top of that, and there's also a change, a sea change, on the relationship between Beijing and Washington back to 1972. So obviously, this really laid the foundation of the scenario where we are now. So back to 1972 and, and to 1979, the two countries formally established their diplomatic relations. And one of the fundamental principles, it is to make sure that the current status quo of Taiwan Strait, which is Taiwan as being a de facto political polity by itself, allowed to keep that status, whereas the Commerce China could only improve the so-called economic ties and people's-to-people's ties with Taiwan. Now, this seems to be so far so good in the last 40 years. But however, since President Xi came to power, and he's obviously took a very different approach on foreign policies and seems to be become more assertive and try to reassert China's international status. Now, part of his China dream it is that element of the so-called national unity, which involves in that Taiwan ultimately become part of China or Taiwan become a province of China. Now, in the Chinese official language, you often hear referring as Taiwan as being a province. But however, I think internationally, many of the organizations recognize Taiwan as a separate entity. So that's where the compilation were now. On top of that, we have a worsening bilateral relations between Beijing and Washington. Um, many parts of this game, many parts of this uh, geopolitical jigsaw that would be have the interest of escalate the situation in Taiwan and would have interest of change the current status quo. Now within Taiwan, one has the current governing party, the TPP, Democratic Progressive Party, 
and take a very pro-independent stance, and it seems likely to win, continue to win the election um, in year or two. And then on the other hand, the opposition, the Kuomintang Party, um, used to have rather amicable relations with the Communist Party in Beijing, and now seems also taking a pro-independence approach. So this makes the Beijing feel rather furious that it seems to be the wishes of become a reunified country as one, that hope seems to dashed. And then uh, United States also have a certain clusters of politicians are interested in pursuing that pro-independence path. So this situation becomes so complicated. Another added element in here is that there's also a very close economic interdependence between mainland China and also within Taiwan as well from the economic factor. Now, from the cultural perspective, in the past, many of the Chinese in mainland China, living in mainland China, have relatives and who live and work in Taiwan. So that sense of emotional ties in the past has been, was strengthened. But however, given that previous generation has passed away, now the current younger generation of Taiwan seems didn't really recognize the Communist China or the People's Republic as so much in terms of the political identity. So that really further complicated the issue and put we in the scenario where we are now, considering Taiwan as the 21st century geopolitical hotspot. Brilliant, thank you so much, Cherry. Um, it's clearly a very deep and multi-layered landscape. One of the most interesting policy recommendations of the report that we mentioned was this issue of increasing public awareness. And now, Cherry, you mentioned China's UN Security Council seat and also touched on the ambiguity around Taiwan status. So I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about how the ambiguity over Taiwan status and um, this quite deep landscape affects our ability in Europe to kind of form and convey a European position and increase awareness about this new hotspot, as you say? Well, this ambiguity really persists, I mean, from all aspects of international affairs. I mean, just give a very obvious example. In the time of Tokyo Olympics, Taiwan appeared as being the China Taipei. And then for some reason that the pro-independence party within Taiwan preferred to refer as Taiwan. But it was agreed that time was International Olympic Committee that Taiwan will only appear as China Taipei. And then the flag of Taiwan will not be raised. It will only be raised the, the flag of International Olympic Committee. So that's one complication. Now, another complication is within WTO, with another very important international organization. Now, Taiwan's status as observer and be able to strike a free trade agreement with countries like, for example, New Zealand. So this really confused, I would say, many European and American audience. What exactly is the national status of Taiwan? Now, for the Chinese official language and also among the Chinese mainland Chinese public, they consider Taiwan as a province of China. Whereas within Taiwan and among large part of Europe and in America, they would consider Taiwan being a very separate political entity. So that complication goes on and on. And then the Taiwan Authority at the moment and try to explore that ambiguity to be able to strike some a bit of a de facto independence and have a bit of room of maneuver. And just to add on this, I think the ambiguity that was just mentioned was also something which makes policy making and decision making in a crisis situation very difficult. And that was also one of the outcomes of the policy games that 
you not only have the distant location of Taiwan, if you look at it from Europe's perspective, you also have, you don't have a clear analysis of European strategic interests. And that altogether makes it very difficult if you imagine a crisis situation for European policymakers to explain to the public why they should become, become engaged politically, diplomatically, economically with sanctions or even militarily in a situation which has a lot of ambiguity and is also far away with no clearly identified European interests. And that was the main and one of the main recommendations we came out with after the policy game that the European public should know more about the crisis. It should know more about why it matters, what, what this crisis has to do with Europe, what are the implications for the Europeans, and also to prevent, in case of a crisis, disinformation campaigns and to educate your own public about what is happening and how might a crisis situation affect the policymaking of, of Europeans. I absolutely agree. I think it's really the geographical distance that makes the European public realize uh, where exactly is Taiwan. I mean, if you're asking a normal European on the street, can you point me where Taiwan is geographically located? And perhaps many audiences would have difficulties to do so. Now, another complication in here is that, well, the European countries or EU member states establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, with, with Beijing. The one principle that all European members have to agree is the one China policy. So Beijing refer as one China principle and the Europeans referring as a one China policy. Now that's a key difference in here. Admitting Beijing's official status while stopping having a formal kind of diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Now the recent case when Lithuania has uh, renamed its um, Taipei representative as Taiwan office. And in the eyes of Beijing, they consider as a, a way of provoking and supporting Taiwan independence. And therefore, Beijing really called back the Chinese ambassador to Lithuania. So it's a quite diplomatic fallout between the two countries and also between China and the European Union. At the risk of getting too bogged down in hypotheticals, how bad could a crisis over Taiwan be for Europe? What, what are the implications of it? That was exactly the question at the beginning of our policy game. Um, we know that there was a significant US-Chinese dimension to the conflict, but our thought was, what will Europeans do if they are confronted with a crisis situation? On the one hand, they will be expected to join a transatlantic approach from Washington. On the other hand, they may have other political and economic interests, especially if it is a crisis situation, perhaps over tech issues or semiconductors, or even a military escalation in the Taiwan Strait. And I think the interesting result here is that for Europeans, the main step should be to first clarify how Taiwan, what role Taiwan plays in their own strategic national interests, the economic interest, the interest in Taiwan's democracy, and then also the geopolitical dimension of the conflict. So the questions for Europeans would be, Firstly, to what extent would they align their positions and policies with the United States? Here, our policy game demonstrated that the outcomes were different among European countries, including the UK. Um, most European countries would want to have a common European stance, a stance coordinated within the European Union to show solidarity, 
but they do not want to align themselves unconditionally with US policy in a crisis situation. So we would need a significant process of inner European discussion about the strategic interests, the instruments that would be available from political, economic to military instruments, and again, contingency planning, how would we react if a crisis escalates economically with sanctions regimes or even militarily? And that would be the first step to have an inner European process on a crisis situation. And then ideally that should be aligned with US policy or compared with US policy to have a transatlantic approach in a crisis situation. But again, our policy game demonstrated that Europeans would have to make the first step first and to agree among Europeans what are their interests, what are their instruments, and how would they react in a crisis situation. I think to add the complication for that is also due to European member, many of the European member states which participated the game on their economic interests with Beijing. The Europeans are sitting, sitting in an impossible position to choose a force to choose a side. And then, of course, this is a strength and this is importance regarding transatlantic partnership. But also in the age of the post-recovery, post-COVID recovery, that European member states still counting on China access to the Chinese market as being part of the way and the source of its economic growth as well. So this really makes the European member states felt so between economics and security, between values and the money, and the which way that Europeans will go for. So that creating further complication, precisely because China is the second largest trading partner with the European Union overall. When we consider the spectrum of opinions amongst European countries on issues such as relations with China, the utility of sanctions, the sanctity of democracy and human rights, etc. It's quite clear that a common European approach to supporting Taiwan is quite likely. Given this divergence, which of course you both already touched upon, how do you even build a common European stance? And why is that the preferred approach? It seems like there'll be a lot of contention points around this issue of values versus economic interests. So given these diverging thoughts and opinions and priorities, what likelihood is there of a common European stance? I think it would certainly depend to a large extent, and that was also the result of the policy game to leadership in the European Union. For instance, France would, according to our policy game, be very much interested in putting the EU on the map as a global player. So to make sure that the European Union is not just on the sidelines in the crisis, but actually takes a part in the decision-making process. Then on the other hand, we had an interesting proposal from the German side in this fictional scenario to uphold solidarity within the European Union, economic solidarity, to make political decisions easier. For instance, with a European solidarity fund to cushion the potential impact of Chinese sanctions in case of an escalation. So we do see there are quite some ideas how we could make it easier to get out of these difficulties that were just described between morals and economic interests and to provide leadership in the situation. That very much relates to political and economic instruments when it comes to military intervention and the question to what extent 
Europeans would be willing to intervene militarily. All Europeans were very cautious in our policy game and favored, in case of an escalation, internationally coordinated economic sanctions rather than military action. Especially reluctant was, was obviously also Germany, with perhaps France and the UK more forward-leaning. But in principle, there was always the wish to avoid escalation and military escalation as long as possible and to use all ways that are available for de-escalation, which also has to do with what we discussed at the beginning, how to explain to your public that doesn't really know about Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, why you should engage significantly or even militarily in a crisis. I think Europeans have already started. I mean, what I'm referring to Europeans is they're also including UK in that sense of the so-called tilt to Indo-Pacific as what we have seen recently on the UK in a strategic integrated review that tilt towards Indo-Pacific, it is not just about supporting Indo-Pacific economies and those countries involved militarily, but I think it's more importantly to increasing economic interdependence between European countries, including UK and vis-a-vis Indo-Pacific partners. I mean, Taiwan would be in that part of the Indo-Pacific and therefore this notion of tilt is the way of resolving or mitigating potential escalation of a Taiwan Strait. I think that's a part of consideration for the UK government, but also for plenty for many European government who are interested in the stability of Indo-Pacific. And I'd like to pick up on that a bit, focusing specifically on Britain. Um, one of the things that came out of this exercise was that Britain saw a potential crisis in Taiwan as a litmus test for the strength of the special relationship. And Terry, you touched upon this, but how does global Britain, which according to the most recent integrated review, is tilting towards the Indo-Pacific, how does it really do that if its tilt is hinging on this special relationship? Is the UK somewhat misguided in its understanding of its ability to handle such a crisis? And how can it afford to say that whilst we want to focus on this region a bit more and kind of diversify our economic interests and our supply chains and the way we conduct trade, partnerships, how can it do that if it's still relying on a special relationship to fall back on? I think we have to take very carefully, you know, that word of tilt rather than pivot, because back to a few years ago that Obama had the word of so-called pivot to Asia Pacific, and now UK has a tilt towards Indo-Pacific. I think it's more selectively to coordinate with whatever the American foreign policy towards Indo-Pacific that they would put forward to, and less so about closely follow every single step that um, United States have decided, uh, because US and China have a separate discussion on Taiwan and cross strict relations. And the worst UK, I think the interest mostly was in the economic realm and also was in the interest of the defending the freedom of navigation realm. So on these two things, which I consider UK would play strong emphasis, and firstly, the most likely strike a free trade agreement with Taiwan, and secondly, also to increase UK's involvement within uh, in the Pacific region, most likely economically. And also plus that UK still have some uh, continuous ties due to its Commonwealth and associations and so on and so forth. So this would put, put UK in a very unique position that to perform that so-called tilt 
but tilt it only has a limit. So it has a, a degree of agreement with United States, but I wouldn't consider as being a 100% to follow exactly what United States are trying to persuade UK to do. And that is also something that could be done already in advance or sort of in preparation for a potential crisis situation to pursue expectations management within the transatlantic relationship. So to start early on identifying the what would be a joint response and also communicating towards Washington what European priorities would be and what the European scope of action would be to avoid a situation when of a crisis when Washington places demands towards Europeans, which Europeans are unable to fulfill. So here, sort of joint scenario planning, joint uh, contingency planning for a crisis situation would help to manage expectations in a crisis situation. Yeah, just picking up on your point of joint crisis planning, I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what role Taiwan and the Taiwanese government should play in the instance of a crisis. How much agency would Europeans give Taiwan realistically and how much agency would they have in determining how they would want Europe to engage should a crisis arise? I think that's a very good question and definitely all European participants in our policy game underlined that protecting Taiwan's democracy and sort of its own agency plays an important role. But then, on the other hand, the question really is how to proceed from this analysis and how to prioritize your strategic interests. And there, I think, in terms of contingency planning, all team members also acknowledged what would be the implications beyond Taiwan. So would this crisis over Taiwan represent a major watershed moment for the world order in general and the US-led alliance system? To what extent would it bolster China's regional and global political and military power? So why definitely uh, participants in our policy game were aware of Taiwan's activeness and its situation there, the crisis would have broader implications and would also from a European perspective also have broader implications on a global order level in general and on the question, how will the world order look like in a fundamental US-Chinese confrontation with a potential block building among other countries in the world who might feel pressured to decide whom they will follow in such a situation? Indeed. I mean, this really magnified the key question, how the 21st century international order should be organized and then in the world that where you have the democracy vis-a-vis -vis autocracy. But however, I think another element what we should also remember in here is for the Taiwan population themselves is a population that share much of the common values uh, with the old Chinese values. So the ideas of being pacifist, um, the least likely to go with a military conflict and the last likely to have an uprising. So that is the cultural sense should also take into account. Uh, despite the fact that you see the current incumbent Taiwan government arguing for independence, but where when they come to the actual measures that the Taiwanese government firstly is um, having a limited capacity and secondly, I think among the Taiwan public opinions and they would much prefer to have a stable environment and they'd be able to preserve its rather unique identity. So I think that element of the Taiwan's own public opinion should also be taken into account while making uh, foreign policy. 
Final question from me, and I apologise in advance if it's a little devil's advocate but is Taiwan essentially the liberal international order's Korea? Is its future and its existence a testament to, I guess, the strength of Western values and the West's ability to react and promote its interest? And will that kind of realisation or that kind of reckoning feature heavily in a European response to a potential crisis over Taiwan? There is an acknowledgement of the importance of the case of Taiwan for the way world order will perhaps reorganize itself and how the West perceives itself. But Europe is definitely not yet there where it will take a clear and strong position based on a clear analysis of its interests. And I think that is something which is to some extent surprising, given that this is not a new issue on the international policy agenda. But unfortunately, Europe still has a lot of homework to do until it will come to a situation where it can react in a crisis situation with full strength, full clarity about its interest in the, in the world. There's a long way to go. Well, for Beijing, I think it's more about reasserting its so-called deserved international status. I mean, the reunification, the talk of reunification for Xi Jinping is part of its so-called China dream. And in a time when there was a the 100 years anniversary of the China's Communist Party, and Xi Jinping made a speech and said very clearly that part of reunification is within the party's um, second centenary goal, which is to make China become modern and prosperous country, but also within a complete territory by 2049. So that's actually offered a de facto timeline on how the Taiwan issue should be resolved. So we'll only have about another 25 years or so and try to observe how the situation will unfold. I know I said final question, but I have a follow-up. I'm really sorry. Um, what should we be looking out for in terms of Beijing's policy and actions in the next few years? What are the telltale signs that the status quo when it comes to Taiwan and China is about to change? And what are the signposts for European observers? Um, I think what we should look for the signpost, we should look into the signpost in October next year on the 20th Party Congress and see how Xi Jinping when he delivered a so-called party work report as the name, as bland as it is, but it's a very serious policy document that if that feature a substantial paragraph on Taiwan with a different terms and code of language, and that means that Beijing began to switch its stance quite clearly. But if not, and if Beijing continued to use the previous similar language such as peaceful reunification, so we were not expecting much change happen from Beijing in the medium term. And let me perhaps also mention another relationship which is worth observing is the Russian-Chinese relationship in the context. And that was another outcome of our policy game that Europeans were not clear about what position Russia would take in a crisis. So there were different assumptions. Russia could perhaps be convinced to act as a mediator or the question would it immediately side with China. And I think that is something both the Russia's reaction to a crisis would show the strength of the weakness of the Russian-Chinese relationship, both in rhetoric and in substance. And it is important to have a realistic assessment of how Russia would engage in such a situation, how the Russian-Chinese relationship would react to a crisis situation, because this helps to create policy responses 
and which sort of might prevent a worst case scenario where one in a crisis situation does not only deal with China, but basically deal with Russia and China at the same hand. So developing a joint and clear understanding of Russian interests in the crisis situation and the development of Russian-Chinese relations is something which should definitely be added to the list of developments to be observed. Absolutely. It would really serve as a benchmark to measure how close that Beijing and Moscow this time have been the so-called strategic relationships. This really come to the time of to substantiate what China wants, whether Moscow can offer or not, and perhaps is really in a serious question. Brilliant. Well, that's not a great place to stop since I have a lot more questions about Russia in this picture now, but I, I think we have run out of time. Um, Cherry and Liana, thank you both so much thank for you. Um, thank you. joining me today. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Wow, I can never get tired of listening to UGA on the podcast. In fact, she was the first or my favorite speaker on the podcast before I joined the Institute. And I used to refer to Cherry as the the best person that the podcast had had on without knowing who she was. And then meeting her in person, I was just like the hugest fan. So thanks, Amrit, for providing this amazing opportunity to listen to her again. It was my pleasure. We all love Cherry on the board. Um, She's really, really great. And so knowledgeable about so many things. It's very incredible. But they were two very interesting interviews, I thought. And it was great to hear Chris kind of take her overarching and bird's eye look at what's going on in Latin America too. If you enjoyed listening, please leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. It just makes it easier for other people to find us. And they're just nice things to read, I guess. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with another two great interviews. Until then, thank you for listening.